Welcome to worship here on this uh, Independence Day. Um, unfortunately, your, uh, <laughs> your unfortunate lot is that you have to hear from one of our elders instead of one of our many, many gifted pastors. Uh, one of my, my name is Colin Hanson. I've been an elder here for a number of, of years. And if, and if that isn't to give you more trepidation, uh, my wife and I just brought our third child home from the hospital yesterday afternoon. Uh, he was almost three weeks early, so I thought I was so smart. I'll take the 4th of July spot because I'll have to be here, but I won't be, you know, won't be otherwise occupied. And uh, lo and behold, if that wasn't enough, then we also get uh, the fifth commandment today, honor your father and mother. So it's all coming together. The spirit has a plan. So as in keeping with our 10, uh, our series on the 10 commandments, let's go ahead and recite those 10 commandments together. You shall have no All right, well, he was the $10 founding father without a father. When he was 10, his father split, full of it, debt-ridden. His father left, his mother died. He grew up buck wild. His name is... Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, that's it for the hip-hop. It's only appropriate on this Independence Day that we open with one of America's most illustrious founding fathers made famous in recent years by biographer Ron Chernow and then by Lin-Manuel Miranda in his Broadway musical. Now, it's odd that we call them founding fathers because the American spirit is all about breaking ties with family, all about breaking ties with country, with history. And no one represents that spirit better than Alexander Hamilton. He gave his life to build a prosperous new nation free from family, free from tradition, free from the constraints of the old world, free of obligations to the past, to the generations who came before, free from his own impoverished father who abandoned his family. Alexander Hamilton was a Christian, not always an exemplary one. He cheated on his wife with an obvious schemer. His pride raged out of control in his voluminous writing, Zeal to defend his honor ultimately got him killed by Aaron Burr, grandson of the famed preacher Jonathan Edwards and former vice president. But as a Christian, how would Hamilton have understood this biblical command? Honor your father and mother. We're going to explore this command from the context of Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. So if you want to, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. We're going to first consider the exact meaning of honor, at least try to get as close to it as we can, and why it's especially for hard, difficult for us to understand in the United States and in the West more broadly. Then we're going to, in the second part of the sermon, we're going to look at the example of Jesus for how to honor our father and 
mother. And this will be the basic message then we hope we walk away from this morning. We honor our earthly parents best when we enjoy our heavenly father most. We honor our earthly parents best when we enjoy our heavenly father most. That'll be this morning's main message. Let's start then and look to Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you, by your spirit, would help us to understand your word Give us insight into your plan of redemption and give us power to be able to to obey your word even when and especially when it's difficult. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, let's just try to figure out what it means, what, what honor means. One of the great things about being able to teach a passage is that you ask the questions that sometimes you just are prone to glaze over. Otherwise, I gotta admit, I really had no idea what it meant to honor. Um, I had some vague notions about it. I was actually pretty surprised by what I found. So let's, let's look at that. I think one of the typical connotations for this would be to obey or to submit. That seems to be pretty obviously included in this, especially with the context of Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's the connection. So especially for children, that application makes a lot of sense. That's definitely included. However, it's a little bit more complicated when we start to dig in to the other instances of honor in the New Testament as well as in the Old. 1 Peter 2.17 tells us to honor everyone. Okay, it's going to be a little bit complicated there. You can't really obey, submit to everyone, not in this way at least, so it can't mean the exact same thing as that. Romans 12.10 tells us outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, again, not really a good fit necessarily for submit or obey. And for that matter, there's actually a whole different word for submission, so they can't mean the same thing there. You might think, okay, well, what about respect? That seems to be implied as well, and I would agree that's included. But it's not quite that either. Because there's a separate word in Romans 13, 7, alongside honor for respect, respect and honor. So again, it's not likely to be the same thing there. So we do get a clue in Ephesians 6, 3, which is this quote from Exodus 20, 12, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I think we're getting closer now. So I'm going to show my work a little bit. I don't recommend this typically, but it it was pretty fascinating for me to go through. So honor in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, there is the same word that we typically translate as glory, weightiness, heaviness. You can see that that would be a very different expectation. Glory, glory or heavy, your father, it doesn't make make much sense there. Okay. Then we have a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And then of course we have the New Testament that's in Greek. Entirely different word, entirely different connotation. More or less, it's a type of economic term, which means to provide for the needs of. 
especially economically. So we have here on the, on the one hand, the Hebrew, which is about this glory or heaviness. On the other hand, we have this provide for the financial needs of. I think more or less our definition can be found somewhere in between those two options or some kind of combination of those two options. I should say it cannot be limited to just take care of your parents because there's a lot more, there's other instances of this as well that don't allow that interpretation. We're called to honor God. We're called to honor the emperor and they don't need us to provide for them financially. We don't have to take care of them. So I think if we, if we understand these different but overlapping understandings of honor, the best way to put it would be to revere or to give them what's due their station or position and to pay them respect, which also includes financial assistance. So to dig a little bit deeper on here, we can see that we're called to honor God, honor the emperor, honor father and mother, all of whom are in positions of authority, all in positions of authority there. But it gets a little bit more complicated than that. We've seen then, 1 Peter 2.17, I mentioned that earlier, honor everyone. We see 1 Peter 3.17, that wives should be honored as the weaker vessel. Okay, to clarify that, I think we just need to go to 1 Corinthians 12, 22 to 26. I, trust me, it'll pay off. We'll go to 1 Corinthians 12, 22 to 26. And it says this. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Okay, I think this passage is what illumines what we're talking about here with honoring our father and mother. 1223, on the less honorable, we bestow greater honor. 1225, so there will be no division and the members may have the same care for one another. This is what Ephesians 6, 3 and Exodus 20, 12 are talking about. It's that phrase, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That is not merely metaphorical. That is actually literal. That's what it's talking about there. So there's two meanings there. One is that it'll go well with you. You'll live long in the land. You will not be judged because you're obeying this commandment. You're submitting, you're respecting. At the same time, it'll go well with you in the land because you'll actually be providing financially for the weaker members of your community, i.e. the parents i.e. the elderly. This is why this passage is so often confusing for us because we're often teaching it in the context of children. We're doing a catechism, we're doing Sunday school, but that wasn't the original audience for the commandment. That would have been more broadly the entire community. 
So it would have been understood to them not so much primarily to be about obeying from children to their authorities, but primarily about taking care of the most vulnerable people in the community, those people who can't defend themselves, those people who can't provide for themselves. And when you do that, they live longer. The community functions in a more healthy way as it ought to. That's what it means. You're giving your parents a home, feeding them and clothing them. You're creating this kind of virtuous cycle where the children do for their parents what the parents had done for them as children. That's how it goes well with them in the land. So that's one of the main reasons why I think it's a little bit confusing. What does it mean to honor your father and mother? Because we're often learning it as children. But the second reason I think it's difficult to understand this is because in the United States, we're often, and in the West more broadly, we're often using parents as a kind of foil for our maturity and our adulthood. We may obey our parents for a time, for a season, but then we chart our own course. We define ourselves against our parents. We define, we define ourselves against all authorities of our youth. We have what's called a coming-of-age narrative that assumes that parents are generally well-meaning, but ultimately we see them as essentially clueless. We see them as stuck in the past. To help you understand how essentially radical that notion is, all you would have to do is study this passage in a place like Korea or to study a place or, or like in China where the obvious connotation to them would be to respect, to obey, and ultimately to provide for and to care for. To res- that, that, that would be the obvious meaning to them. But again, we're more, we more get caught up in debates about at what point do I have to stop obeying my parents? That's a good debate to have because clearly the relationship changes, but you can see how much our cultural context influences how we come to this passage. There's also a more practical reason why I think it can be difficult to understand what this means. And that's because we have social security, we have Medicare, we have nursing homes to care for our parents in their old age. We have retirement accounts that we set up to provide for ourselves at that time. So we often think of our parents, at least some of us, more in terms of the kind of inheritance that they will give us as opposed to how we would be caring for them financially and otherwise in their old age. Now, I'm not saying in this that necessarily nursing homes or Social Security are a bad thing just because they make it a little bit difficult for us to understand this. To be clear, I'm not sure Social Security will still be around for other people to be able to take advantage of. And I do think it's worth pointing out that one third of the deaths from COVID-19 came in institutional care facilities, such as nursing homes. So I don't think it would necessarily be a bad application of this passage if more of us thought about bringing older parents into our homes when possible to care for them. I know some of you do that. But to be clear, that's possibly a good implication of this, but I don't think it's a necessary application. I do think the core of what it means to honor is to revere, to pay them what they're due, to respect. But the distinction is that in a healthy community, 
This is happening in multiple directions from the top all the way to the bottom where the strong find ways to honor the weak and to care for them. And ultimately what results is a healthier community all around. So that's the basic meaning of what it mean, what I can tell, what it means to honor your father and mother. But even though it's a holiday, that's not where the sermon stops. So let's just keep going and see what else we can discover here. So let's see what else this passage might have to offer us. So you've got it. You're thinking, I'm providing for my family. I'm helping take care of my parents in their old age. Check. Okay, well, let's go back to Hamilton. No more hip-hop, promise. But let's go back to Hamilton. Why did he believe that his father had deserted his family? It was because he couldn't support them financially. And his biographer Chernow writes this, father and son never entirely lost touch with each other, but a curious detachment, an estrangement as much psychological as geographical separated them. Okay, you don't need to be an expert therapist in family systems to detect the origin of Hamilton's boundless pursuit of honor and ambition. Some people rebel against their absent parents. Others try to prove their worth. Hamilton spent his entire life trying to prove that he was something to someone He never could fill that void that was left by his father. He never could make that ache go away. It was a major factor that contributed ultimately to his death in that duel. When you're counseling, whether it's you're the person doing the counseling or being counseled, you're almost always dealing with parents and children. Almost always. I don't need to know each person each one of you this morning, to know that you're carrying some kind of burden in relation to your parents, most likely, some kind of burden there. And I want you to know on this Independence Day that you have come to the right book, not Chernow's biography, but the Bible. (laughs) You've come to the right book because the Bible is brutally honest, brutally honest about parents and Children, it is anything but naive about the challenge for children to honor their father and mother. So let's go on an Independence Day tour of the Bible's history on parenting, the Bible's manual to being a good parent. Let's start with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, now their son Cain killed their other son Abel. Not off to a good start there. Second, let's go ahead to Noah. Noah got drunk, exposed himself to his sons, one of whom laughed at him. Okay. Abraham conceived his first son with his slave. Then he ultimately banished that son and his mother, took his second son, Isaac, to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him at God's command, which to be clear was the right and faithful thing to do. I just have to think it complicated the father-son dynamic a little bit. I don't know. Isaac, he's tricked by his wife, Rebecca, to bless their younger son, Jacob, instead of their older son, Esau. This rivalry led to centuries of warfare between Israel, that is Jacob, and Edom, which is Esau. 
Jacob himself favored his youngest son, Joseph, so much that his resentful older brothers left him for dead at the bottom of a well before they realized they could make a buck by selling him into slavery. Friends, we are not even out of the book of Genesis. <laughs> not even out of Genesis yet. Okay. David's son sexually assaulted his daughter. David did nothing about it. So his other son killed his brother, then led a revolt to overthrow his dad's kingdom. David's military commander ultimately then killed his son. One of David's sons, Solomon, world-renowned for his wisdom. He thought it was a great idea to take 700 wives, 300 mistresses. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he wasn't the most attentive father to thousands of offspring, resulting civil war in his house led the kingdom of Israel to divide. Folks, I am only talking about the heroes of the Bible. These are the Bible's heroes. Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the great reformer kings of Judah. His son Manasseh sacrificed his children to the Canaanite god of Molech. Child sacrifice is considered the most heinous sin of the Old Testament. Widely practiced in the ancient Near East, but seems to be more universal than that. Excavations in Mexico City have found widespread human sacrifice from the Aztec civilization as well, which often included people that they had enslaved and captured, but also included children. They've uncovered underneath Mexico City entire mountains of skulls. This appears to be a kind of universal evil. And clearly it's pretty hard to honor your father and mother when they're killing you, putting you to death. In Jeremiah 7.32, the prophet warns that the place of child sacrifice from Manasseh in Jerusalem will become the valley of slaughter in God's judgment. It is exactly what happened. That's what God did by bringing the Babylonians to raise Jerusalem, destroy the temple in God's righteous judgment for this, for this, for his chosen people sacrificing their own children to a Canaanite false God. This valley of slaughter, the site of Manasseh's child sacrifice was called Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom in Jerusalem. You may not think that you know this place, but I promise you, you do, because in your Bible it's translated a certain way, real simply, hell. It's translated as hell. It's the place of fire. When Jesus talks about hell, he's using the imagery, he's using the language, the experience, of the place where the Jews killed their own children. Evil exemplified is child sacrifice. So why the Bible has so much to say about parents and children because this is the essential problem of human nature. Fathers and mothers mess up their children who take it out on their own children. It is an endless cycle. Sometimes the children rebel like Manasseh to his father Hezekiah. Sometimes they try to prove their worth to their parents like with Alexander Hamilton. So the question for us then is how do you stop the cycle? 
How does the cycle ever end? What if you've never seen good parenting? How can we honor our parents if they hurt us? What if your parents were or are today dishonorable? What do you do? Let's look again then to the Jews. They knew God as Father, but they, it was not common for them to worship him as Father until Jesus came as the Son. Until Jesus came as the Son, and when he just taught his disciples to pray, our Father. Let's look closely at the, let's zoom in on the geography of Jerusalem. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed in the Garden of, Garden of Gethsemane. It's just east of Jerusalem. Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, is to the south of the city. It'd only take you today about 30 minutes to walk between Gethsemane and Gehenna. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane because he knew he was headed the next day to the place of the skull. You've probably heard that before, Golgotha, just north of the city. Only about a 20-minute walk from Gethsemane today to Golgotha, to the north of the city. When Gethsemane, knowing what lay before him, the son prayed to the father in Matthew 26, 39, and he said this, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. At Golgotha, Jesus endured Gehenna. At Golgotha, Jesus endured Gehenna. The son passed through the fire as the sacrifice for sin. But this son would be totally different. And so was his father. This is no Hezekiah and Manasseh. This is no David and Solomon anymore. They're totally different because this son perfectly honored his father. The son perfectly honored his father. He did his father's will. He obeyed his father. But Jesus is not some kind of passive victim in a child sacrifice scheme. He offered himself willingly as a sacrifice, even though he had never sinned, which is precisely what made him the perfect and only acceptable atoning sacrifice. Jesus explained all of this well before his death, in John 10, 17 to 18, he said this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Jesus did not die until he was ready. Until he was ready. Luke 23, 46 tells us this from the cross. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And never through this Gehenna at Golgotha, did the perfect fellowship between father and son from all eternity past ever break. Never did their love for one another, their perfect love for one another, ever fail or ever falter. 
The perfect son cried out in his agony to his heavenly father, and it was finished. What? What was finished? What was finished? The endless generational cycle of sin. Parents killing their children. Children dishonoring their parents. This genealogy of misery that we're all a part of. Every generation since Adam and Eve condemned to death because of sin. The perfect son died so that we could join the family of the heavenly father. He endured Gehenna so that we could be spared the valley of judgment, the place of fire, if we only believe. And Jesus did even more, even more than this. He obeyed his father's will to the end so that we could obey the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Honoring your parents is one of the hardest things we ever do in this life. That's even if you have honorable parents. Physically and economically, it is draining to obey this commandment. You add something like dementia, and it makes it feel completely impossible. And what if your parents, they treated you badly? What if your parents are not even around, like Hamilton's? but you're still living in the pain of their perpetual prolonged absence. How were you supposed to hold up here? It's one of the most touching moments, I think, in all of Scripture. It's in John 19, verses 26 and 27. This is Jesus right in the middle of his Gehenna at Golgotha. He's in the middle of the fiery trial. And still at this moment, he is still thinking of others. He's still putting others ahead of himself. He's still perfectly obeying the fifth commandment. Think about this, friends. Who taught Jesus this commandment? It was his mother. It was his mother, Mary. It's his stepfather, Joseph. But Joseph's gone by this point. Joseph's dead. We don't know how long it's been. But Joseph's not around it's not around, but they taught Jesus this commandment. They helped to raise him to, to follow it. And Jesus, even on the cross, he never forgot it. This is what we're told. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, that is John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus was the oldest son to Mary. And even in this moment of distress, he's still finding a way to provide for her, to care for her, to fulfill his obligation, to fulfill the fifth commandment. So you see, we honor our earthly parents best when we enjoy our heavenly father the most. We honor our earthly parents best when we enjoy our heavenly father most. When we believe this Jesus, we belong to his heavenly father. He becomes then our physical strength when we don't think we can endure another day of painful labor with our elderly parents. He becomes our emotional comfort when our parents berate us. 
It becomes our financial provision if our children abandon their obedience to this commandment. He becomes our gracious forgiver when we ourselves break this commandment. The Father and the Son break the cycle so that generations are no longer doomed to repeat the sins of their fathers. Praise God. We honor our earthly parents best when we enjoy our heavenly Father most. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for your obedience even to death, and we rejoice in your triumph over death through the resurrection. Spirit, we need you now to help us to obey this commandment wherever we are, in whatever circumstances. God, they're all known to you. You see us, you know us, you love us, and you promise to help us in this time of need. And we we need that, God. On this Independence Day, God, we declare our complete and total dependence on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.